So we are going to look at, uh, today we've looked at master-servant relationships. Uh, we looked at punishment for murder last week. And now we're going to look at a couple of other topics, uh, starting with property rights. There we are. In Exodus 22, we're going to start in verse number 1. It's if a man shall steal an ox or a sheep and kill it or sell it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. There we go. And so, obviously, there's restitution to be paid when thievery takes place. I wish this, this would still be practiced uh, in the day which we live in. If someone does steal, no matter what it is, we've got to return fourfold. And if that happens, I'm sure there'll be a lot less stealing going on. Amen? And so, it kind of reminds me of Luke 19, verse 8. When you look at Zacchaeus, it says, And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I will give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And so here you can tell Zacchaeus, after this, the Lord said to him, you know, today salvation has come to your house. Now, what was the evidence of that? That he loved the word of God, that he followed the scripture. In fact, he, he knew what the Bible said. He knew the civil law of Israel. And yet he still was stealing and he was a false witness. And there's a couple of different principles within this chapter that deal with guys like Zacchaeus. And so he knew right away that he had done wrong and he knew the restitution. He didn't have anybody need to tell him that, what he needed to do. He says, Lord, this is what I'm going to do. And so Lord says, no, you know, well, I'll read it. It says, and Jesus said unto him, this day is salvation come to this house for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so a wonderful example there of the evidence of salvation. And so if you can get away with stealing and feel good about it, then I wonder whether you're truly saved, really. Uh, and I think today there's a lot of false professing going on. A lot of people, you know, counting in some experience or some prayer they pray, but never a true repentance and trust in the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it didn't change them. And so no restitution was made there. Uh, letter B, thieves killed during a theft at night was justified, but not after sunrise. And so this is interesting here. It says in verse number two, if a thief be found breaking up and be smitten that he die, there shall no blood be shed for him. Then it goes on to say, if the sun be risen upon him, there shall be blood shed for him, for he shall make full, rest, full restitution if he have nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the theft be certainly found in his hand alive, whether it be ox or ass or sheep, he shall restore double. And so in the heat of the moment, in the, in the act of thievery, breaking in, uh, you think we see this all the time, you hear it on the news, how someone breaks into a house at night and the husband maybe has got a gun or something and he deals with it because that's all he knows to do at that moment and he kills the thief. Nowadays, what happens is they almost put the, the homeowner in jail, you know, for it. But the Lord says, no blood shall be shed for him, that if he's caught in the act, and then through that transaction or through dealing with him in the night, he, he somewhat, he, he gets killed. Uh, but he says, if the sun has come up, and later on you catch him with this stuff in his hands, then if you kill him, then he says, the blood will be required of you. That means you can't just go and you know, take vengeance on a thief, you know, even if you catch him later. But if you catch him with, with the goods in your hand, then what they would have to do is restore 
uh, like we had said before, uh, it, it says restore double. And then uh, restitution, the word restitution here, it means the act of making good or of giving an equivalent for any loss, damage, or injury. And so that's kind of what it's required if you catch the thief after, after the fact. Letter C, a man cannot allow his cattle to feel, feed on another's property without restitution. Now, like I said, many of us probably don't have cattle that we got feeding in the neighbor's yard, but you can, you can apply this principle right across the board here. So whatever your, is your neighbor's, and let's say your, your dog gets out and eats their garden, uh, <laughs> whatever, eats their cat, <laughs> whatever, whatever it does, you have to pay restitution for that. That's justice, you know? And so those are the principles that, that you're showing here. It says in Acts, uh, Exodus 22.5, If a man shall cause a field or vineyard to be eaten and shall, be, and shall put in his beast and shall feed in another man's field of the best of his own field and of the best of his own vineyard, shall he make restitution. Yeah. That means that you have to pay back that which, which was taken from the neighbor, and even you're the best of what you had, not the worst. Amen? Letter D, if property or crops are damaged by fire, there will be restitution paid. And, of course, just another aspect of, uh, of that. And letter E, ju- judges will determine if your neighbor stole your property and restitution. You see in verse number 9, it says, For all manner of trespass, whether it be for ox, for ass, for sheep, for raiment, or for any manner of lost thing, which another challengeth to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whom the judges shall condemn, he shall pay double unto his neighbor. And so here you have within Israel, of course, even Moses, he appointed 70 elders or 70 judges, and they would take care of business like that. Uh, And so what the Bible's telling us, same with the church, whatever, we ought to make sure that we're dealing with each other fairly, you don't always have to involve the law on things unless it's criminal. If it's criminal, you ought to involve the law. Amen? Uh, that's something I've learned <clears throat> as a pastor. If it's a criminal act, I can't just, you know, cover it up. You know, that has to be dealt with according to the law. Uh, and so many times I've had to do that and bring the police into something, and it's not very uh, comfortable to do that. So <clears throat> don't do anything criminal, all right? But if there's something, let's say, civil that goes on within the church. There's nothing wrong with you going to, the, to someone with wisdom in the church or maybe deacons or pastors or whatever and say, hey, this is what happened. Sort it out with the church members. You know? Now, if it's not church members, maybe it's your neighbor, you may have to go to the, the law for that or just say, you know, it's gone. And so that's what it's saying. You can't always determine in yourself whether that person did it or not. And sometimes you have to bring it before the judges. We see that principle actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to turn there. I don't have it in my notes. Ah, pages. Um, no, not 5, number verse 6. That was the right one. It says in chapter 6, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to the law before the unjust and not before the saints. So what it's telling us is if there's an issue within the church, you ought not be just going to the law with it. You ought to deal with it within the church body. Now we're talking non-criminal issues, all right? That's what he's dealing with here. And he goes on to say, Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged of you, 
Are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. So there you see a, a really important principle. It's saying, okay, if you have an issue, work it out before the judges within the church. Uh, someone that is wise enough to discern the situation. Or, he says, why don't you get even above that and just be defrauded? That means sometimes you just need to take the hit, take the loss. And do it for the sake of unity in the church or for the sake of uh, you know, just going forward or so forth. And, and so he's saying... That, that really we're not acting like Christians, especially when we're taking issues with one another in the church and bringing it before the judges of this world, the, the unbelievers. And here we as believers are supposed to judge the world, you know, and to be judges one day. And so it doesn't make sense that way. And so I think that, I think there's probably a um, mentality within churches within this century, in the last century for sure, that we've given over a lot of our responsibility to the world. Uh, one of those things is dealing with the mental health of the individual that happened in the 1970s when, when pastors gave up the duty to deal with people's mental health in the church body and they gave it up to psychology and psychotherapists and so forth. And that was never God's will. So they started to say, you've got medical doctors to deal with your body, you've got psychologists or psychotherapists to deal with your mind, and then you've got the pastors to deal with your spirit. But the problem is this, the Bible tells you to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, <laughs> amen. So the, the fact of the matter is, you hand over your mind to the world, there's no change in the spirit, amen. And that's what's going on today. And so now Christians, many of them are convinced that there's no room within the local church to deal with their emotional issues. When that, and, and by the way, I believe most pastors are very ill-equipped to, to help people who have emotional issues. Because the answer, oh, just go soul winning, given give the offering, and you know, these are our options. And, but that's not true. There are many uh, avenues open to people to deal with the inner stuff, the anxieties, the fears, the uh, whatever issues, the lies you're working through, whatever negative emotions you're feeling. Uh, you go to the world, they'll have you on pills in no time. In fact, you don't have to go there very often. If you go there with a medical problem, they'll first try pills on you. You can have an emotional issue because of a physical issue, and they'll want to give you pills for it, you know? And so I'm not saying that, you know, all pills are bad, but I'm saying, what are we doing bypassing scriptural instruction and mind renewal? Because that's what it is. Your emotional problems are our mind renewal problem. Something be, needs to be renewed in the thinker, amen? And then you become well. And so that is the one thing that has happened within the churches is they have given over the responsibility of that. And now, oh yeah, we can't even deal with anything in the church. It's all, this is just a soccer club. 
That's not the way the Bible shows it. The Bible tells us we are much more serious than that. And I think we've got to get our minds back to that type of uh, thinking and mentality. Amen? Anyways, so the judges. All right, the letter F. Uh, one that borrows anything from his neighbor is responsible for its return and incurred damages. Amen. <laughs> That's why it's very important you understand this. When you borrow something from somebody, you ought to be prepared to buy it. And if you can't afford to buy it, then you shouldn't probably borrow it. Because if something happens and you're going to give it back to that person that's not functioning, you're guilty. And you owe that person either to fix it or replace it. And so if you've got no means to buy it, then you ought not borrow it. <laughs> Amen. Because you'll sit there guilty and you'll have a rift in your relationship with one another. And so the Bible says this in verse 14. And if a man borrow out of his neighbor, and it be hurt or die, the owner thereof being not with it, he shall surely make it good. That means the owner does not, he wasn't there. Uh, you borrowed a donkey, you, whatever, you borrowed a tool, <clears throat> whatever it is. If it gets broken or if it dies, you have to make it good, is what the Bible says. That's civil law. So you can say, well, that was given to, to Israel. <laughs> no, think about this. If God gave <clears throat> this law to Israel, what's going to happen when Jesus puts himself on the throne of this world? What laws is he going to operate within the global economy that we live in right now? I guarantee you, these principles here will be put into action. <laughs> and I also believe that these principles here ought to be, and I, th I was thinking about this, you know, Lord, are we not responsible for the civil law that you've given to Israel today as a church age. And I thought about that. Why didn't God make it that we somehow had this implemented where we had to do it? <clears throat> Why is it we don't have to do this? Why isn't the Lord making us do these kind of things? Why is it left to our decision? Then I thought about the Christian life. Then I thought about liberty. Now I thought about the work that the Lord is doing in us in the Holy Spirit. And I think the Lord wanted it to be this way. I think the Lord wanted us not to be forced to live by the civil law. And he wants us to live by these principles through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit of God. Where nobody is threatening you to return that to the neighbor or to fix that. But because of your walk with God and the Holy Spirit inside of you, you couldn't go another day if you didn't take care of that problem. Amen? That's what I think. I really think the Lord allowed this on purpose, you know, because with Israel, the whole thing about civil law is they needed the law because they were carnal. We as Christians, we're not supposed to be carnal. If you need someone to force you to do it, then you're not right with God anyways. Amen. But if you're right with God, walking with God, I think that we automatically will buy them a new one, we'll repair it, whatever we got to do. To our own hurt. The Bible talks about swearing to your own hurt. You know, no matter what it costs, you make sure that that brother or sister in Christ is uh, properly, uh, has proper restitution or, or payment for that. And so, but it says, but if the owner thereof be with it, he shall not make it good. For, for if it be a hired thing, it came for his hire. So basically, if you're saying, hey, your neighbor, could you come do this for me? And then he breaks it while he's doing it. That's his responsibility. 
It's not yours. You understand? So I get my neighbor sometimes, and he's been very good to do this for me. He sprays for dandelions for me every year. I don't have the sprayer. I don't have the tank. And every year I think about buying it. Then I look at my bank account and say, I can't buy a sprayer. <laughs> you know, so so I, I opt out rather to, to hire my neighbor and give him a lesser fee than the whole tank to do my lawn. And he does it every year. Now, the last time he did it, this year, he was using his tractor. But then I also noticed that he was gone. What happened is his tractor broke down. See, it wasn't my responsibility now because I hired him to fix his tractor. That's what the Lord's saying here. So that's on him. He's making the money from and he, he has to incur the risk for, for the thing that he's doing. That'd be the worst thing. Well, I was doing this for you. You fixed my tractor. Well, that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be justice. So it's amazing how the Lord thinks of all these things, isn't it? <laughs> he's got it figured out beforehand. Anyways, it's very important for us just to grab a hold of these things. Now, number four... We're going to get crimes against humanity. And we'll get as quickly as we can here through this. Um, letter A. Immorality with a virgin required a monetary dowry, even if the father refused to allow marriage. Okay? So who's, who allowed the marriage? The father. Look at verse 16. And if a man entice a maid that is not betrothed and lie with her, he shall surely endow her to be his wife. If her father utterly refused to give her unto him, he shall pay money according to the dowry of virgins. So it's like this. If you're going to be underhanded and immoral and do something like that, you ought to be prepared to marry that person. Now, if you're a good dad, though, and you see the situation, you say, well, I don't want my daughter to marry this, this immoral person that I can't really trust. And the father refuses, they're not allowed to marry the father has a say over the marriage. That is God's law. But that person still has to pay a dowry because of what he did to the daughter. Isn't that something? That would be a great law to have in place right now. Because you've got a lot of ungodly young men that really don't care about consequences. And they ought to pay, they ought to pay half a year's paycheck or a year. You know, when they do something like that and they mess with somebody and not care about their future. Amen? That would really deal with a lot of problems, I think. But that's the Lord's remedy, all right? Letter B, witches were to be put to death. So, by the way, witches, the Lord's not for witches. Now, he's not telling us to kill them today, but he's telling us what he thinks of witches and witchcraft. He's telling us he hates it. He tells us it's an abomination to him. In verse 18, it says, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Thou shalt not allow. That's why even when Saul got into power there in Israel, he would actually kill the witches or he would, they would be exiled. They'd run out of the, out of the country. And that's why when, when uh, at the end of his life, where he actually sought counsel from the witch, she was afraid because she knew that he had actually followed the scripture in the past, but now he wasn't. Now he was actually inquiring of the witch as to what he needed to do. That's how far he had fallen. And so uh, we know that witches were to be put to death. By the way, folks, my wife is reading this to me this week. In, in the 1800s, when, when feminism began, some of the founding principles of that was based upon witchcraft. They said in order for feminism to become successful, we have to turn to witchcraft. 
and destroy the family. Feminism is wicked. It really is. And it sure came out at a really wicked time. You know, textual criticism. They're starting to criticize the Bible. They'd had the King James Bible for 400 years. Now all of a sudden they're making new versions. Now all of a sudden you got Joseph Smith and the Mormons coming on the scene and the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, this is right on the heels of, of Darwin and evolution and all these thoughts and so forth. And then you've got the feminist movement. You've got all these things brewing up within those few years. That's something. It was right on the heels of the Victorian age. What was that? That's when people began, became prosperous. That's when they started putting railroads together and they started you know, being more busy and more industrious and so forth. See, with more money coming in, <laughs> the evil came with it. And I'm convinced of this, that the love of money is the root of all evil. That means if you could cut the money out of the government, there'd be nobody doing wrong. But that's not what's going on. You can be sure when they're making decisions that are against the word of God, there's a dollar behind it somewhere that somebody's putting in their pocket. Amen? I'm convinced of it through the board. <laughs> I mean, everything that you think maybe has not... Uh, we were talking about this uh, today. Uh, Shelly was telling me about uh, the, the, uh, that movie that's out about the, um, the child uh, abductions and so forth and what's going on with all of that. And this guy's trying to expose it. Um, really what's behind it is money. You know? And so here we got our country. They got all kinds of internet laws that have been put into place. And they can, they can stop nude pictures from coming onto Instagram. But why don't they stop the pornography? They could. Why don't they stop it? Well, the nude pictures on the Instagram stuff, that's not taking any money out of their pocket. That's giving them a little bit of, see, I'm kind of moral, but what about the stuff that's putting money in your pocket? That money gets spread around. That's a multi-billion dollar business, and they're not willing to shut it down in Canada. Why? Where's that money come from? Where is it going? <laughs> you know? I believe it, folks. I know the devil's behind it and the devil's working on his plan on this earth, but I also believe that he uses money as a means to get men and women onto his plan and his course for that he wants to work out in this world. And of course, his uh, underlying purposes is hidden to many of these people. But to them, they're just looking at the lust of the flesh. To the devil, he's looking at murder, destruction, you know, and so they may not be all be Satan worshipers. I think some of them are. <laughs> and I think there are many more coming out of the woodwork than we've ever known before, you know. Wow. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen this. I'm just going off on some news stuff. You know, but the European Parliament, the European Union, there's 679 seats that they have within the European Union that people sit in this building. It's in Brussels and it's, a huge place where all the power people come and they, they deal with all the European problems and so forth and get together. There's one seat that is still vacant out of the 679. Guess which seat that is? 666. There's one empty seat in the European Union in that building. And each of those seats have a number. And that's the one seat that's empty. So... Who's going to sit in that chair? I'll tell you, there's all kinds of witchcraft and wickedness going on. 
you know. And if you'd read some of the founding principles of some of these unions, I'll tell you, you'd be very shocked to find out what's really behind them. Amen. Anyways, let's move on. Letter C. Bestiality warranted death. Um, Exodus 22, verse 19. Whosoever lieth with a beast shall surely be put to death. And so you say, well, what's the big deal? Nobody's really, it's not really a problem. Well, maybe not at this moment, but it really could become a problem uh, with the way this world is going. Uh, Now you even see some people treating their animals in a way that isn't quite proper. You know, it's too, too close for comfort there. And uh, the Bible says that's, that's, the, that's warranted death. You should die. And so uh, it's wicked. Letter D. He that sacrificed to false gods would be utterly destroyed. Exodus 22.20. 20, he that sacrificeth unto any god, save unto the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. I thought about this. And uh, what is this here? I was reading in 2 Kings, let's see if I can find it real quick. Yeah, this is it. In 2 Kings, through our Bible reading, I just came across, it's just amazing how many of these uh, illustrations I'm picking up just from my Bible reading as I'm going through civil laws, and so, many, so, so much of it really backs it up. Here you have the, the leader, Jehu. I don't know if you're familiar with his situation, where he came into power, but he was very zealous, very zealous. He was a very aggressive leader that came onto the scene. And what he did, it says here in verse 24 of 2 Kings chapter 10, it says, and when they went in to offer, so what he did, uh, let me go back one verse. It says, and Jehu went and Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, into the house of Baal, And said unto the worshippers of Baal, Search and look, that there be here with you none of the servants of the Lord, but worshippers of Baal only. So he comes on as a leader. He tells all these worshippers of Baal, Everybody come down to the temple, because we're going to have a big party for Baal. So they all come down there, yet before they do what they're going to do, they go through the crowd and make sure there's no worshippers of the Lord in there. (laughs) You know? You'd think that would have maybe, you know, caused some questions. But it says, um, and when they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings, Jehu appointed fourscore men, that's 80 men, without, and said, If any of the men whom I have brought into your hands escape, he that letteth him go, his life shall be for the life of him. So I'm pretty sure they're not going to let anybody go. And it says, And it came to pass, as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, that Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, Go in and slay them, let none come forth, and they smote them with the edge of the sword, and the guard and the captains uh, cast them out and went to the city of the house of Baal. And they brought forth the images of, out of the house of Baal and burned them. And they break down the image of Baal and break down the house of Baal and made it a draught house unto this day. Thus Jehu destroyed Baal out of Israel. That's zeal. It goes on to say, How be it from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, uh, who made Israel to sin, Jehu departed not after them to wit the golden calves that were in Bethel and that were in Dan. So he didn't quite complete his job. It cost him. But notice what it said in verse 30. It says, And the Lord said unto Jehu, Because thou hast done well in executing that which is right in mine eyes. So God commends him. You think, wow, this is just a guy going crazy here. No, what he is doing is following the law of God. 
He that sacrificeth unto any God, save unto the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. And that's what brought this about, you know? And so you see, just a little, that's one sentence right there. One sentence that God gave them. And you know what? God gives complete authority to exercise that, that uh, execution against these worshipers of Baal. Uh, letter E, those that afflict strangers, widows, and the fatherless would die by the sword. And so it says in verse 21, Thou shalt neither, uh, neither vex a stranger nor oppress him, for ye were in strangers in the land of Egypt. Ye shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If thou afflict them in any wise, and they cry at all unto me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath shall wax hot. And I will kill you with a sword, and your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. If thou... Um, yeah, I won't do that. Uh, vexing strangers means violence or oppressing means to force or to crush those that are weak. Widows, children that don't have dads. Boy, that goes into line with what's going on today. <laughs> the movie's trying to promote this, uh, you know, uh, what's going on as far as children being taken and kidnapped and used and so forth. Uh, the Lord is very much against that. And he calls for death Amen. when that stuff happens. Uh, letter F. One could charge interest when borrowing. One could not charge interest when borrowing to the poor. Exodus twenty two twenty five. If thou lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him as a usurer. Neither shalt thou lay upon him usury. That means when there's poor people, if you borrow them something, let them pay you back exactly what they borrowed. Don't put an interest on it. Don't don't make money off of the poor. That's a great law. Yeah. Boy, that'd be great to do that. The thing is, everybody today is poor, and that's probably because they're not working and they don't want to. <laughs> you know, There'd have to be some judgment in relation to this. Letter G. One could not retain items as collateral that were needful to the borrower. And I thought this is kind of interesting, the Exodus twenty two twenty six. If thou at all take thy neighbor's raiment to pledge, thou shalt deliver it unto him by that the sun goeth down. For that is his covering only. It is his raiment for his skin. Wherein shall he sleep? And it shall come to pass when he crieth unto me that I will hear, for I am gracious. <laughs> Amen. So basically what he's saying here, if you're going to take anything as a pledge towards money or towards anything else, and you take something that is a, a, a necessary item that somebody needs to survive, you are not to keep that. Before the night falls, you bring it back. You don't take a person's blanket. You don't take their clothes. You don't take something from them that they absolutely need to survive. Amen? And that's a great law for us to, to operate by, especially in the church, you know? Uh, Lord, help us if we, we put somebody in a situation where they don't have what they need because we took it. <laughs> you know, it ought not be. Uh, the Lord says, if they call to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. Be careful. <laughs> Amen? A letter H. One should not revile or curse rulers. Rulers. This is interesting. In Exodus 22, verse 28, it says, Thou shalt not revile the gods, nor curse the ruler of thy people. The word God is used referencing the fact that rulers are given by the Lord. Okay? It's not saying that they are gods. It's not saying that they are divine. But he used this, he used it in actually in a couple of different instances in the scripture 
where he called judges or rulers and he used the word gods. But he used that because he's telling you that they are under my divine gift. I've given them to you. And so it says, don't revile them nor curse the ruler of thy people. And I thought about this, Alberta, you know, I know how you feel, but you got to stop doing that. It's hard. (laughs) I appreciate that, Elizabeth. (laughs) Romans 13, verse 1, it says this, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, that, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. And that's talking about judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Most of the time. <laughs> Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is a minister of God and revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Now I understand that is all a matter of perspective today. The Bible says there's a day where they'll call good evil and evil good and bitter sweet and sweet bitter. And so what do you do in days like that? You just do right. Just keep doing right. You know, uh, I believe, I don't believe that one man can come along and change everything. We're not a dictatorship. That's the thing. Our government is ruled by our constitution. And so you will have people that are going to abuse the governing of this nation by taking on themselves a dictatorship. And they, will help, they should be held accountable to that. And so really our government is a constitutional government. And that's what governs the people, you see. It's supposed to, unless we decide not to. And then we say, okay, us as the people, we're going to vote that we no longer have a constitution. We're going to give complete power to the king. <laughs> you know, uh, That's a different thing. And that's the context many times that they're talking about in the scriptures that you're dealing with a dictator. The thing is, we don't have a dictator. We have a constitution. We have a republic type of government. Uh, the way that the Romans began to bring in uh, the Senate and so forth. You ever thought about this? And I think about this lately. I was talking to Brother Stone about it. I said, when it came to the, the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, where he was the head of gold and went all the way down to the legs of iron, which is the Roman Empire. But then the feet was, was iron mixed with clay. So what happened is it got weak at its foundation. Now, why is that? Well, clay is a picture of humanity. It's a picture of man. Yeah. So what happened here is the empire, the rulership, got mixed with the people. So you say, well, I believe in the democratic government. Well, I think this is the best thing you could do in the situation we're in. And I'll tell you why. Because we don't have a dictator that is righteous. If we had a dictator that was righteous, we'd be okay. But you know what? A dictatorship is the best form of government if the leader is Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, then it's the best form of government. But when you start letting the people decide, like us, which is... But, folks, as far as we're concerned right now, in this wicked world, it's the best form of government because you cannot find a leader that is going to rule righteously. Amen? But you also got to remember that when you start mixing in the people 
within the government, it becomes weaker. And that's why it got mixed with clay. That's why it didn't bind. You know what I mean? And it was very easy for the Lord to knock it down with his stone from the mountain, you know? And so I really believe that the dictatorship is the best form of government. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have a dictatorship when he come. He'd have a democracy. But it won't be a democracy. It'll be according to the word of God. Yeah. It'll be the best form of government to have Jesus ruling by his word. Amen? Amen. But until then, the best we can do is democracy. <laughs> what happens when the majority turns evil? Then democracy isn't doing much good. Nope. And that's the weakness. Now, if the majority is always good and righteous, well, sure, then Jesus Christ is ruling through that majority. But that really isn't what's going on in the world today. And so we really have to depend upon the Lord uh, at times like this. And so, anyways, you know, one can civilly disagree with a ruler, but there must be a respect for the fact that the Lord establishes leadership. The result of slander and cursing a leader can lead to insurrection, can lead to rebellion in the home, in the church, in the country. Folks, if you think that you can go around and curse your leaders to other people to get them mad at the leaders, then you ought not complain when your children do the same thing to you. Or the same thing that the church member does to the pastor. <laughs> you know what I mean? So either it's, it's a principle that goes across the board, or we're... we're picking and choosing where we rebel. <laughs> you know what I mean? So we don't operate that way. That's not the way God's people operate. And God made it very clear. You do not revile and you do not curse your leaders. So anybody has those stickers on the back with Trudeau on there, take them off your vehicle because you are disobeying the word of God. It's against the civil law of God. And you're violating principle. Amen. I'm not saying you've got to agree with what he does. I certainly don't, and I'll make that very known as well. I'm against the abortion laws. I'm against all these uh, limiting free speech and so forth. It's wrong against forcing people to take vaccinations and all these things. I'm, I'm against that kind of stuff. But you know, the fact of the matter is, it doesn't give me the right to curse them or revile them. Amen? So I hope that uh, you could swallow that, <laughs> all right? <laughs> Um, it, is, it is really a statement of our mistrust of the Lord. This is the thing. Since we are not committing leadership to the Lord and trusting God's ability to change their heart or use their hard heart to get glory, as in Pharaoh's case. So whatever the situation is, if we revile and curse the leaders, we're simply just showing we don't trust God. It's a statement of our lack of faith. If God set them up for whatever reason, now maybe God set them up because he's judging the nation. Just like Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah tried to tell Zedekiah, submit to him. You submit to him, you're going to live in peace in Jerusalem. But he wouldn't, he rebelled. And so God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to capture him, take his eyes out, and ultimately he died in Babylon. He was led away into captivity. When he could have just survived under the chastising hand of God. And so sometimes we have leaders that are allowed to chastise us for not being righteous, not making righteous choices. So I think we got to repent first. We got to do right. Then we got to say, Lord, I submit to your chastisement, 
But then I also pray for your protection over our church, our families, as this ruler is enacting these things against our people. You see, it all has to do with your, your walk with God. <laughs> so reviling and cursing is a statement of your lack of trust. Right? that's all I'm doing is trying to, trying to cause an insurrection and rebellion against our leader. All right. Uh, Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. First uh, Timothy 2.1. I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So how do we get this quiet, peaceable life? Put stickers on our vehicles? Rise up against the government? No, God says you pray. And if you'll pray, that's when I'll move my hand for you to give you that protection and that quiet and peaceable life. But he says, first of all, pray. Amen? In Titus, it says the same thing. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. So, folks, if there's something that violates your conscience, let's say they're asking you to do something that you know in your relationship with God that you cannot do it in good conscience. You know what? You have got the right to say no based on your conscience towards God. But what you don't have the right to do is get angry and rebel because they come at you with punishment. When you make an act according to conscience, you're also willingly taking the consequence of it. So if here I say I'm doing this for my Lord, and then when they come at me with a consequence, I get all freaked out, well, then I'm not really doing it for the Lord. That's why many people went to the stake. And they could have very easily gotten out of it. But they would not, according to conscience. And they wouldn't become sour and bitter. They wouldn't curse at the executioners. In fact, many of them sang hymns to the last dying breath. That's what I'm saying. I mean, if we're going to take a stand, then we better take a stand scripturally. And that means take the responsibility for your decision and then bear with that and trust the Lord to restore. And many of you had to do that. Some did that during this last situation. You know, you had to let it go. He said, according to conscience, I cannot. I had somebody tell me, I, you know, as, as far as I've, I've talked to God about it, he will not give me peace to do this. I says, well, then you need to follow what the Lord's asking you to do. And the Lord blessed him and the Lord did restore him. Because he had the right heart towards God. Amen. It's all a trust issue. It's all whether you're walking with God or not. Just don't get sucked into this whole, uh, you know, government rebellion thing that's out there. That ought not be for God's people. We ought not be like that. And we ought to say, hey, let's pray for them. I know they're wrong. I know they're doing wrong. Nero was wrong. (laughs) Can you imagine living in the first century with Nero as your leader? You'd be glad to be in 2023 with with our leaders, you know? 1 Peter 2.13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king or as supreme, or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. Uh, 1 Peter 2.17, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. 
Pointing us over and over and over. In the New Testament, he gives us that admonition to be careful about that. That's hard, I know. <laughs> you say, boy. But you know what? When we go against dignities, we go against rulers, really what we're doing is we're, we're exhibiting characteristics of false teachers. That's why the Bible says in Jude 8, it says, Likewise, also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. These are the, you're in a bad, you're in a bad group if you're with these guys. He just finished talking about uh, the devil, Balaam, Cain, all these people that were wicked at the heart. And he says, don't you, don't you be with those people. Don't you go along with what they're talking about, you know? And so that's a characteristic of, of those type of folks. Now, in letter I, one who is, one was never to hold back the first fruits of the harvest from the Lord. Chapter 22, verse 29, it says, Thou shalt not delay to offer the first of thy ripe fruits and of thy liquors, the firstborn of thy sons shalt thou... It's not talking about alcohol, by the way. <laughs> I had to say that because... Oh! I don't have to throw away my booze. Yes, you do. Firstborn of thy sons shalt thou give unto me. Likewise shalt thou do with thine oxen and with thy sheep... Seven days it shall be with his dam. On the eighth day shalt thou shalt give it me. So what it's saying is that firstborn of that, that cattle, that cow, that sheep, I'll give you seven days. By the eighth day, that ought to be mine. The first fruits of that sheep. First fruits of that cow. Whatever it is, you know. So what's the big deal about the first fruits? Well, Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. Whenever we're given of the first fruits in the Old Testament, it was prophetic looking forward to Christ. Now we give of the first fruits because we're looking back to Christ. And we're looking at him, offering himself as the first fruits of the resurrection, the firstborn from the dead, the Bible says. Amen? So in honor of that, we're giving our first fruits unto the Lord. <laughs> so it says, do not delay. That means... You know how it is. Oh, yeah, we got to tithe on that. Yeah, well, we got to give our first. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do that soon. <laughs> you, know? you know how that goes. Two weeks go by. Oh, I forgot. You know, next time. <laughs> you know? So don't delay. It ought to be a priority in our heart. In fact, when our paycheck comes in, it ought to be something that's immediately on our heart to give unto the Lord. Immediately. And, and if it's not, then we need to examine our hearts as to why it's not. Well, I can't pay my bills. If you're paying your bills, you're in big trouble. If you're, if you're leaning on yourself for your survival, you're never going to succeed. I know it doesn't make sense, but to the Lord it does. Because it's not always what God gives you, it's what God takes. That's why in Malachi it says that he rebukes the devourer. How much would I give and tithe this month? You know how easy it is for the Lord to take that in devouring? And he can take it all at one time, or he can wait a year, and all of a sudden you're paying a really big bill that's covering the last year and a half. You think, the Lord isn't that fussy, is he? Well, look at, look at Israel. What happened when they, for those 409, or that 70 years of Sabbaths they didn't honor? God said, that's enough. And he sent them to Babylon for 70 years. They spent one year in captivity for every year 
that they did not keep the land Sabbath. <laughs> so he very much takes track. <laughs> Over a period of 70 years, many of us, that's almost a lifetime, not quite. <laughs> you get that? So folks, don't think that you're somehow saving yourself by not giving the Lord the first fruits of thine increase. Now for sure, it's a statement of my trust with the Lord once again. I don't trust that he's taking it. I trust I'm the one who has to make this happen. I'm the one. If I don't do this, it's not going to happen. And the Lord has to bring you down. He has to humble you because that's pride. Pride is saying that you are in charge. You're not in charge. You need to get to the place in your life where you realize your whole future and your success. doesn't matter how great you are or what you do. God can take it that quickly. And you need to trust him with it. You need to trust him with your first fruits. Give it to him. Trust him with it. Because you know what? It's not worth being devoured. And that's why the Bible says, if you give, and he, he, not only that, he calls us robbers. He says, how, how have I robbed God? Or how have you robbed God? By your tithes and offerings, he said. You're robbing him. I said this on Sunday, even about Jacob. When Jacob saw God at the top of the ladder with the angels ascending and descending at Bethel, which means the house of God, and he relayed his promise to him and said, Jacob, this is what I'm going to do for you. This is Jacob's response. If this is what you're going to do for me, I will give you the tithe of all that you've given unto me. You know, the first thing that switched in his head is that it's God that gives me everything. Yeah. So I'm going to give you 10% back of everything you give me. And you know, we're not tithing. We're not giving the first fruits. We're not saying God gave it to us. We're saying, I work for it. It's mine. What does God have to do to teach you? Because he will. Sooner or later you will learn. Because he needs to be glorified through your life. Amen? A lot of people say, well, tithe is law. <laughs> no, I believe tithe is grace. Because yeah. tithe is based upon everything that the Lord has given you freely. Look at Jacob when he went to, uh, and he worked with Laban. He took some sticks, threw them into the trough. <laughs> when he had the speckled cattle, they grew, he got more cattle. When Laban changed his mind, he says, oh, I'm going to give you the, the, the colored cattle or whatever. <laughs> it changed to his, God did it all. And that's something that Jacob said right off the start. If this is what you're doing for me, then I'm going to give you 10% of everything that you give to me. You get that? It's not law. It had to become law with Israel <laughs> because they were carnal. And so he says, this is what you got to do and you got to do it. And if not, this is going to happen. But you know what? For us as spirit-filled believers, it shouldn't be law. It should be grace. Amen? <laughs> Hope that makes sense to you. I'll read to you Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord of all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Well, you know, yeah, right, just shut up. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. Honor the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the self-existent one, 
with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. Amen? Amen. I'm not saying there's not a time of testing sometimes. I've gone through that. I want to be faithful in giving and he brings you down to a whoo. Lord, how can you expect me to tithe? <laughs> and you do it anyways. And you watch the Lord take care of you. He fills the barn. Amen. Oh, if we could just see that everything that comes to us is of the Lord first. That's of the Lord. So I'm just going to give back to you 10. He says, if you can give back the first fruits of your increase, he says, then I am going to fill your barns. Wow. That's not prosperity gospel. But that's trusting God and Him blessing you because of it. Amen? Anyways, let's move on. One of the hindrances to the gospel today is not the amount of goods that is given, but it's, the God, it's God's people that do not trust the Lord enough to give what they ought to give. Churches are struggling today, especially in Canada. You say, oh, poor churches. I think a lot of it is because the people's hearts aren't a giving, aren't, aren't a giving heart. See, because it's reflecting the state of the heart. It's not about the money. It's about reflecting the state of the heart of the people. How can God use a church that will not give from their heart and trust him with the carnal? In fact, isn't that what it says in, in uh, Matthew where it talks about being a steward of the mysteries of God? How is it that we can we expect to be stewards of that which is great, which is the gospel, if we cannot be stewards of that which is little, which is our carnal goods. There's a principle in the scripture like that. So basically, the giving of the people is a reflection of the heart. The state of the heart of the church determines how God's going to use the church. So a lot of churches are dead because the people are dead. Or the preachers stop preaching and challenging, <laughs> you know. That's why I got to preach stuff like this. Not because I want your money, folks. Many of you folks have been giving. Uh, we're, not, we're not struggling through financial problems. But that doesn't mean that God can't take his hand off of this church because of our hearts. Amen. You understand that? What's going on in here? <laughs> That's what it's all about. Amen? Anyways, it says in Luke 6, 30, Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together, running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. And, and on it goes. Letter J. An animal that was torn by a wild animal was to be discarded to the dogs, <laughs> as the blood would not be properly drained. I believe that's why you shouldn't be eating roadkill. <laughs> I knew somebody, he'd find something on the highway, he'd take it home. I just kind of... Well, it was fresh. It just happened. Yeah, but you know what happens is the blood pools within the muscles. And you can't drain it properly. That's why most people, when they hunt an animal, they drain the blood right away. And the Bible says, you shall not eat blood. Amen. But some people, I guess they figure it's a free meal. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Anyways. And you shall be holy men unto me. Neither shall you eat any flesh that is torn of the beast in the field. You shall cast it to the dogs. And so, even if just freshly killed, just throw it out. Amen. All right, I'm just going to give you these blanks and we'll be done. Letter A, 
Oh man, here I shut down my notes. There we go. Um, it was forbidden to lie as a witness. Uh, letter B, one should never join a crowd in lies, gossip, or slander involved with evil purposes. By the way, most time there's gossip and slander, it's, there's an evil purpose there. Trying to turn your heart against somebody, you run away from that stuff. It's wicked and evil, and the Bible's against it. Um, yeah, I had so many good things on that. Uh, let us see how to treat enemies. Number one, return lost property that belongs to your enemy. Well, they lost it. I'm going to keep it. No. The Bible says you return it even if it's your enemy's property. If thou meet the, my, thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. <laughs> Amen. Number two, do not allow damage to occur to your enemy's property. So this is an interesting thought as well. If thou see the ass of him that hateth thee lying under his burden and wouldest forbear to help him, Thou, thou shalt surely help with him. So basically, you see somebody's animal pinned underneath something, and you know the person that owns that hates your guts. You're obligated to help his property, his animal. Amen? That's a good principle. I mean, that can go across the board here. Like I said, not too many of us have donkeys, but... Proverbs twenty four seventeen. My dad would love a donkey. I think he had one. I think he'd buy another one if he found one. He just loves donkeys, just to have one. He would just have one. <laughs> I don't know what he'd do with it, but anyways. Proverbs twenty four seventeen: Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth. Lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. See, if we truly commit vengeance unto the Lord, that means we totally commit it unto the Lord. We don't take it upon ourselves. But if we start rejoicing in the punishment that God is bringing against someone's life, God says, I'm going to withdraw that punishment because I'm not going to allow my punishment to be viewed that way. Interesting, you know? So our attitude is very important when it comes to our enemies and those other things.